First film I ever remember being taken to see, Daniel. Well, great place to start and great way to start the show. Indeed, yes. A great favourite of ours. We can decided. I tell my Dick Van Dyke joke? I you promise, can. I promise it isn't rude. There was, um, in, I think it was The Independent a few years ago, there was one of those um, sort of end of the decade quizzes, so it would have been last year, where it's like, how much do you remember? And one of the questions was, um, define what a modem is, and one of the options was, uh, modem is how Dick Van Dyke pronounces madam in Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one, yes. Yeah. It was a pretty rubbishy accent, wasn't it? But the, the point is, it doesn't matter in this case, because he's singing and dancing, isn't it? and of course, he also plays the elderly Mr. Dawes, who ends up laughing himself onto the ceiling. Yes, indeed, yes. Right, shall we have a look what's on at the uh, our local um, cinemas first? Yes. Yeah. Start with the Playhouse. Um, Tuesday evening is going to be Little White Lies, Certificate 15. Yeah, that's um, it's a sort of French um, romantic drama with um, Marianne Cotillard, who's a very charismatic actress. She was most recently in Inception playing uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's dead wife and did a very good job of it. So I think it's worth seeing for her performance, otherwise it looks a bit samey, but no, she's very good. And Thursday evening, Your Highness. No, I wouldn't recommend you see that. Um, it's... It's directed by David Gordon Green, who sort of started out as a very promising director, but has sort of lost his way. It's it's trying to be a modern stoner comedy in the manner of sort of it's trying to be the Cheech and Chong of its day, but it fails miserably. So that's one to skip. Right, both films seven thirty. Box office number for the Playhouse is Anik five one zero seven eight five. Meanwhile, at um, the Maltings in Berwick, um, one p.m. on Monday. So I guess this is probably for the family. And eight p.m. on Tuesday, My Dog Tulip. Yeah, no. I haven't seen this one, but my parents were in the West Country recently and they caught it in a sort of art house screening and they really didn't like it. Yeah. Um, so, as with Scream 4, which I think you're going to talk about in a second, yeah. it's, it's a sort of swings and roundabouts film. There are things about it which are, which are interesting in the way that it's sort of, you know, it's a hand-drawn animation and it's clearly been made very lovingly, but I'm not sure that the subject matter entirely works. Right, and then as you said, on Monday evening, 8pm, it is Scream 4. And again, it's a case of, you can sort of understand why they made it in the sense that the, the sums add up from the first three films and there's a lot of stuff that's ripe for the kicking, frankly, in horror at the moment, but it's not, it's not as good as the first one by quite some distance. Okay, right. Shall we have a look at the top ten then? Yes, I think we should. Yes, I'm actually looking at uh, the Rotten Tomatoes website and there's a picture of Luke Skywalker and... Um, 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 who was it that was Princess Leia? Oh, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher. And Mark Hamill's the actor, yes. I think, yeah. Yes, indeed. Is that the Star Wars re-release in 3D that you're looking at? Isn't it? Uh, it's something like a sort of summer... Uh, look back at the blockbusters or something feature okay. on Rotten because Tomatoes. That, yeah, because we're going to have to put up with that Phantom Menace is coming out in 3D this summer. So. Oh, right. Can't wait. Oh. Right, number ten. I hope that was sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> number ten, Water for Elephants. I'm glad it's hung around so long, actually. I mean, it's a perfectly decent old-fashioned melodrama, which I think demonstrates Robert Pattinson's better actor than a lot of people thought. Right. Number nine is Attack the Block. Which I like. I think Joe Cornish is an interesting director and the film is a nice sort of mix of sort of modern day social commentary and old fashioned sci-fi. I don't think it's funny or scary enough to be a proper horror comedy, but it's pretty good. Right. Number eight, Hannah. Uh, Joe Wright's best film, worth seeing, if nothing else, for the performance of Saoirse Ronan, whom I, I said last week her next film is going to be um, directed by Danny DeVito, so that should be interesting. Good. Number six is Insidious. Which is admirable, but sadly not scary, so it doesn't really work as a horror film. 
Right. Number five, Rio. Still there after all <laughs> these weeks. I mean, I think it's fine, but not much more than fine, and it didn't need to be in 3D. But it's clearly, it's clearly hitting its target audience. So good for it. Gosh, we're rattling through the chart this week. Number five is Fast Five. Well, it is what it is. I mean, it's it's an unnecessary sequel, and it's a bit empty, but it is what it is. It's passably entertaining, and you know, as um, as. Paul Young, who used to host this program, said it's nice to see Vin Diesel that he's trying to act for once as opposed to just turning up in films and playing right. a piece of wood. Number four is Thor. Which is knowingly ridiculous and quite good fun. I mean, I think, no, the comparisons with Flash Gordon that we've sort of touched on are, are merited in the sense that there's that sort of knowingly, knowing silliness and the high camp tone, but it's also quite dangerous because very few things are as good as Flash Gordon. And I think that Kenneth Branagh is better at doing uh, comedy than he is often given credit for. Um, I was listening to an interview with um, Stephen Fry on Five Live the other day. And he was talking about Peter's Friends, which is a comedy that Branner directed with Stephen Fry. And there's a moment in that where, uh, where Kenneth Branner reaches across and puts his hand on Stephen Fry's stomach and says, what's that? And he says, it's a port. We have them in England, along with good manners and taste. <laughs> I like that one, yes. Right. Right, straight in at uh, number three, one that we talked about last week, Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2. Uh, yeah, it's... It's all right. I mean, I, as I said, we're not the target audience for either of the... For, we're, neither of us are the target audience for this film. And yeah. it's perfectly decent, middle-of-the-road, child-friendly slapstick. It's nothing to write home about, and certainly if you haven't seen the first film, there's no reason to dash out, because it'll be all right on DVD, but it's fine. So I guess the top two aren't going to fill you with joy, are they? Pirates of the Caribbean, number two? Well, I'm not going to rant again, because I think I made myself... <laughs> I think I made myself pretty yes. clear last week. Suffice to say, it's hideous. But it's interesting... We'll come on to the sort of interesting point once you've said the top yes. one for And number one, straight in, whatever one we talked about last week... Yes. Um, ...helps to be on, uh, on uh, Graham Norton the night before, doesn't it? It's The Hangover Part 2. Yeah, which is equally hideous. I mean, it is essentially the first film with all the gags rehashed and done in a slightly nastier and more racist way. I mean, I just don't know why you'd go and see it. The only interesting thing about it is that Pirates of the Caribbean was billed as being uh, released in Disney Digital 3D and they'd sort of shot it in 3D and made a big deal about it. And although it had a pretty good opening weekend, um, it's been knocked off the top by a 2D film and its second weekend takings are actually way down yeah so there's been loads of stuff written in, in the industry about oh three that if the 3d's coming and if it's true good because i don't think i could stand another one of those right yes so it was uh was it two men and a monkey in a monkey in bangkok as we summarized yeah, it last i think week. it's actually three men but no. three men but who cares ah, well fair yeah. enough yeah. right okay uh, shall we have some music? And shall then... we just give our recommendations of what's in the top ten at the moment? Why not? Why yeah. not? Yes. Um, well, Hannah's still in there, Attack the Block is still in there, so go and see those, and Thor. I suppose Diary of a Wimpy Kid if you've got young children, because that's the... Because I'm pretty sure everyone would have seen Rio by now. Yeah, right. So that's that's the recommendations. Actually, talking about Rio, that is on at Berwick tomorrow night. No, tomorrow afternoon at 2.30. So that's why it's still taking money. Yes, indeed. <laughs> they just right. hoarded all the prints and put them in the northeast. Yes, right. Some music now, and Anik Bass Band, Tucker's great song from them, Gabriel. On radio. Sounding like one of my old vinyl records that have been played too much, that one. The Tuckers and Gabriel. 
and if you've never seen the video of that song on YouTube, you should go and have a look at it. Absolutely brilliant. It was recorded in one of our local churches, I think in Edlingham, and it's absolutely fantastic. Good. Really, really worth going to see. I shall make a note of that. Right. So, this week's cult film is Savage Grace, not to be confused with Saving Grace. No. Which was a brilliant film. I haven't seen it, actually, but I hear you it's You should. Good. I will bring the DVD in for you. All right. Right. Okay. Nice to see you getting so enthusiastic for once. Yes. Okay, um, it's a rather unusual entry to the cult film slot because it only came out three years ago. Well, it was sort of made in 2007 and then released the following year. But I think it's sort of, we can sort of count it as a cult film because, well, in the first instance, it didn't take much money at all. And I think it's got a very unusual sort of execution. So from its odd nature, I think it's one of those films that could become a bona fide cult film in a few yeah. years, but I'm sort of getting in early. Right. Um, had a budget of $4.6 million dollars, and directed by Tom Cullen, whose only previous film had been a film called Swoon about 16 years earlier, so there was a long gap between films. And that was a very interesting film because it was about the, um, you know about the Leopold and Loeb case from the 1920s? Yes. yes. Um, basically, for those who don't know, there were these uh, two um, young men who were very openly gay and were in a homosexual relationship, and they tried to organize a kidnapping with the idea towards committing the perfect crime, and it all went horribly wrong. It was a very famous murder trial. It was... Um, famously made into a film called Rope by Alfred Hitchcock, which is the one of Alfred Hitchcock's films in which it's constant ten-minute takes, and then whenever, you know, he'd only shoot what's in the camera, and then every time yeah. he had to cut, it would sort of pan behind a person's back or face <laughs> black and so forth, so yeah. it looks like you're watching it as a play. Very good performance by Jimmy Stewart. Um, this... The swoon alongside Savage Grace is sort of seen as part of what's known as the new queer cinema movement, which is Carlin and another director called Todd Haynes, who's the guy who made um, Far From Heaven and I'm Not There most recently, the Bob Dylan anti-biopic. Um, sort of movement of directors who are very openly gay and exploring sort of issues about sexuality and sort of AIDS on a very upfront level, a very uncompromising way. Haynes also made a film in the 90s called Velvet Goldmine, which I think has got Guy Pearson, but I might be confusing him for someone else, but it's a very interesting sort of coming-of-age film. So, uh, to give you a little plot synopsis, it's a biographical drama about the life and death of Barbara Daly, later Barbara Daly Bakerland, who is played by Julianne Moore. Uh, she was an American socialite who married into the Bakerland family, who this you know, American family who had basically made billions and billions through Bakelite, which is the first plastic that had been invented by this guy's grandfather. Um, her husband is played by Stephen Delane, and the film follows the troubled relationship between sort of Barbara and the lifestyle of the Bakelands, you know, massive wealth, massive international fame, houses in every country in the world, and in particular the relationship with her son Tony, who's played in a really great performance by a young actor called Eddie, Eddie Redmayne, who was most recently in uh, Black Death with Sean Bean. Um, and there's a sort of implication that Tony was either gay or bisexual, depending on yeah. which accounts you believe. And in particular, the film sort of focuses on what happens to the uh, relationship once it emerges that the husband, who's called Brooks, has actually been having an affair, and it gets rather dark, and shall we say, there is incest involved. Yeah. But actually a true story. It is. I mean, the, the film takes a couple of liberties, and when it came out, it, it did generate a bit of controversy from the people who were involved, because there are a couple of them who were still alive. But I think in general it's quite faithful, and if, you, if you're if you not familiar with the story, you will kind of sit there open mouth thinking, this, did this really happen? Yeah. Yes. It must be very difficult doing a film about a recent real story, particularly one which needs to be done with sensitivity like that. Yeah, because we're talking, well, the murder of Barbara Bakerland was in 1972, so this would have been, yeah, it would have been 35 years ago when they started making this film. And yeah, it's it's very difficult, and you have to... 
you have to make a certain kind of creative decision about how how much you're going to present in terms of the truth or how much it's going to be in terms of your creative vision. I mean, one of the problems I often have with biopics is where is that you have a sort of conflict between on the one hand we've got to get all the facts right but on the other hand we've got to make it dramatically interesting so yeah. i mean i mean i think the best biopic i've ever seen is tim burton's ed wood because that makes it very clear you know, we're going to present him as this and use his character as the starting point to explore sort of deeper issues of cinema yeah. and therefore you don't get the thing that oliver stone's biopics often do which is him sort of for you at the back this man is good <laughs> or this man is bad you get it now so Whenever anyone describes a film as admirable, um, it's usually a polite way of saying that it was sort of made for the right reasons, but... Not very well. It doesn't... <laughs> yeah. It's made for the right reason, but it doesn't work. I mean, there's there's that phrase which I which has been bounded around a lot and I often use called admirable failure, which is used as a kind of saying, you know, well done, but... Sort of. yes. And certainly, I mean, if you look at the serious work of Steven Spielberg, for instance, things like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan and The Colour Purple... Yeah. Again, it's that sort of term applies because in those cases, they're stories that needed to be told. I think we can all agree on that. And they were made with absolutely the very best intentions in the sense, you know, um, Schindler's List was, you no, know, he didn't even take a fee for that one. Saving yeah. Private Ryan was saying, you no, know, World War II is not an action movie. The Color Purple, you know, great performance by Whoopi Goldberg about sort of depression. But in the end, the intentions doesn't make it great in and of itself. And yeah. in the case of those films, they end up a bit disappointing because they can't quite decide how dark or light they want to be. Um, you'd sort of expect Savage Grace to fall into the same camp in the sense that, as we said, it's a, it's an extraordinary true story. It's, it's sort of like an open secret because it caused a sensation when the murder happened, but then it sort of faded from view and sort of like, uh, a lot of people have since forgotten about it. And in terms of its execution, it is a very difficult film to watch, partly because of the subject matter being so uncompromising, but also the shooting style as we'll come on to. But for all the things that are wrong with it, I think, that you do endure its weaknesses and then underneath you do find a very thought-provoking story with a really phenomenal central performance. One of the big problems that Savage Grace has it, it is the kind of difficulty surrounding making films about rich people with problems. Because it's one thing to make a film about sort of rich, successful people having problems, you know, things like um, period dramas, Merchant Ivory, No Baumbach most recently. But it's another thing to make a film about rich people with problems that we actually care about. Because it's very easy to just kind of put rich people on screen and say they're relevant, but in fact their problems don't have any sort of bearing on our own circumstances. I mean, you'd, you'd sort of understand where I'm coming from with that. Yeah. Um, it's made sort of much harder in this case because um, Carlin's directorial approach is very unusual. In, the, in, in contrast to, well, to use the comparison with James Ivory, whereas James Ivory's films are very sort of, they, they try and be very intimate in the sense that there's lots of sort of close-ups and uh, people sort of covering their faces and slunking off into the shadows. Carlin is very unflinchingly cool in his direction. He's very sort of distant. So um, the characters in Savage Grace are very difficult to get a handle on and the film only provides sort of basic coordinates of what's going on and you're supposed to do the rest of the legwork. Yeah. But um, in order to explain how it sort of, well, gets away with it, it's the wrong phrase, but sort of, if you compare this to, um, there's a Michael Mann film called uh, Public Enemies. I don't know if you saw that. Came out a couple of years ago. No, with uh, Johnny Depp and Christian yeah. Bale, and what that film attempted to do was that it attempted to sort of take a, a an extraordinary event in American history, in this case, the the rise and fall of the bank robber John Dillinger, and sort of paint it in a very nostalgic way. So you know, you have Johnny Depp playing John Dillinger as uh, no, a public enemy number one, but also America's greatest hero because he's going around robbing banks in the middle of the Great Depression and redistributing yeah. the money. The problem with that is that the film was shot on sort of 
ultra-high-def handheld cameras. So there was a sort of disjoint between, on the one hand, we want to be sort of lyrical and rose-tinted about the past, and on the other hand, it's like watching one of the Bourne movies, although yeah. not quite as good. And as a result of those things being at odds, you never got into the drama because you weren't sure you yeah. know, who, was, who were you supposed to be rooting for. The thing with Savage Grace is that there is no nostalgia for its period setting at all. I mean, you have very stately camera work. Like I say, it is distant, but it's it's not sort of juddering around or there's not much in the way of flashy editing. And because of that, you can sort of dissect the period through the tragic story and you come to see the characters not as a series of sort of bores sitting around moaning, like, oh, I'm rich and successful, but I can't do this because I'm just so bonkers. <laughs> but you see them as sort of products of a particular lifestyle and the film yeah. is much more about is as much an indictment of them as an indictment of the sort of the culture and the money that produced them. It sort of takes the story of the Bakerlands and uses it as a prism to examine success. And the central argument of the film is that if you have such insane levels of wealth and luxury, particularly in a world where you have no boundaries, you will effectively go mad. And there is a through line with um, American Psycho from eight years previously, which, you know, Christian Bale's character, Patrick Bateman, who's sort of, he's in... He's in this job because his father owns the company. He doesn't really have anything to do. He's earning lots of money, and as a res and as a result, he can sort of freely pursue serial killing. I don't know if you've seen American Psycho. Uh, yes, yes, I did. Did. You, did you like it? Well, it's, liking it is a difficult thing to say. I mean, did you think it was a good film? Oh uh, yes, I think it's, yes, good film. Yes, put it that way. Yes, <laughs> yes I thought you'd yes. kind of you know, come out with a rant about it, but no, no, it is a good film. So it does paint a picture of material success as something morally empty and vacuous and there's the the central line of the film is spoken in the narration by tony the young boy and he says quoting his grandfather who was the guy who invented uh, bakelite one of the uses of money is that it allows us not to live with the consequences of our mistakes and i think as the film goes on you realize that Cullen's actually thinking actually you do have to and here's yes. why because otherwise you'll end up like these people yeah there's a degree of caricaturing isn't there it's sort of yes yes you see examples in real life of rich families that have lost the plot and their children never know quite how to work in the real world but that's sort of dwarfed by lots of examples where that doesn't happen and uh, you sort of pick one once a few specific examples and then generalize and get a bit of a caricature I, I, it. yeah i think it is very easy to, to generalize I, I do see your point and in the case of savage grace there is a very sort of it's very highly choreographed but i think the point it's as i said at the start the point is not it's not just about the family, yeah. it's about saying what the lifestyle could produce as opposed to what it does produce. Because yeah. it's not saying that all rich people are evil, because that's what, that's a hiding to nothing, frankly, because otherwise how would they have made the film? Yeah. Um, so you have this kind of, this theme about the suffocating influence of wealth, but you also have the, suff the, the, uh, the stuff in the film about the suffocating influence of family. And on the one level, that's literally true, because at the end of the film, after the murder has taken place, we're told in sort of post-credits, uh, Spurge that uh, Tony was then committed to a mental institution and ended up suffocating himself with a plastic bag, which is of mm. course a very ironic way to go, considering yes. his family made their fortune in plastics. I suppose uh, <laughs> that's why he did yes. it. Um, but it's conveyed on a deeper level in the relationship between Tony and his mother. It sort of begins safely enough because um, Barbara, played by Julianne Moore, is presented as someone who is very sort of um, flamboyant and provocative and outspoken because she's someone who's sort of married above her station and is desperately trying to fit in, but also can't resist sort of having a dig at all the sort of the slightly pompous people around her. And But she's sort of generally concerned with improving her husband's image. However, once the affair starts about halfway, two-thirds of the way into the film, she steadily sort of offers her 
loads and loads of sort of very juicy one-liners, but delivering in like three or four languages because during the course of the film she's trying to learn French and Spanish yeah. as a way of impressing all these sort oh. of ambassadors and so forth. And it's, I mean, the best moments in the film are sort of the outbursts of her when, you know, she spent sort of ages and ages sort of swanning around with a cigarette saying, oh, it's wonderful. And then suddenly she just feels the need to swear endlessly for about five minutes. And, but the thing is, more sort of, although she is spiteful and self-loathing and smothering as a mother and as a husband, as a wife, sorry, um, she is essentially played by Moore as a tragic figure who sort of craves affection. And there is a through line with, I suppose, Catherine Tremell in Basic Instinct. I mean, do you remember seeing Basic Instinct? Yes. Yeah. And there's that whole argument about, and, um, which sort of Paul Verhoeven was trying to make about, is this woman just the devil? Or is she someone who is, you know, an unfortunate creature who just happens yeah. to be mentally ill? And Sharon Stone was very much playing it as the latter. Um, the central scene in the film which sort of conveys all of this is what's known as the airport scene which is where barbara has gone to the airport in the middle of nowhere because they're living in america at this point to uh, pick up her husband from the airport and she's kind of waiting in the waiting room and there's been an announcement put out on the tannoy and she sees him coming down having just checked out um with um his mistress which uh -huh. she didn't know about but the but the twist is that up until about sort of five ten minutes ago in terms of the film that mistress was also her son's girlfriend so ah uh, right yeah yes. so she's not happy and she sort of kind of runs after him calling him a coward and saying very unpleasant things about the girl and then there's a blistering tirade at his well penchant for Satan sexual practices, which I don't want to go into, aside from anything else, it's just gone half past ten in the morning. And so she kind of says her piece and embarrasses him, and he says, no, this is just an amalgam of paranoia and spite, you don't know what you're saying. She knows that she's not going to get him back, so she sort of walks out saying, you know, you're a little too old for this. And then there's a sequence outside the airport in which she effectively has a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And it's a very sort of powerful scene, and that is the moment in the film in which she sort of tips over into... The, the start of the decline into mental illness, which you know she's never going to escape from. And there is a, a comparison with um, Carrie, the uh, Stephen King adaptation by Brian De Palma, um, because th both... Um, do you remember the moment in Carrie, at, it's actually near the end, where Carrie gets covered in pig blood? Oh, yes, yeah. And it's, the, and it's the whole thing of that's when she finally learns to focus her telekinetic powers and you know, does really bad things with them. Yeah. But it's that moment of... Those are the moments where both... Um, Carrie and Barbara Bakeland have finally learned to focus their rage into something and it's the thing that irrevocably changes the character and also you can see that in the way that Julianne Moore's dress is sort of it's red and white and it looks like it's been sort of blood spattered not in the sense that there's sort of bits hanging yeah. off it but it's, it's an interesting mix of red and white as the film moves on, it sort of shifts from being a sort of third-person point of view, sort of looking at the family from a distance, to being more about sort of Tony's madness. And there's very little exploration as to the precise cause of the madness, because there's, I mean, you could argue that there's a sort of Oedipal thing going on because, you know, he falls in love with his mother. But on the other hand, it's not strictly Oedipal because there isn't, in order for it to be properly Oedipal, they have to hate the father as well, yeah. and he doesn't hate his father, so it's, it's difficult. I suppose the closest comparison would be Psycho in the sense that it's, you know, domineering mother, which leads the, the kid to commit a serious crime. Yeah. The difference is that rather than kill the mother, he's, sorry, rather than killing other people, he's actually killed his mother. I mean, you could sort of, depending on how much you want to read into Psycho, you could argue that Norman Bates did that first before killing all the other people, but that's, that's left open in Hitchcock's film. And there's that, there's a very chilling line at the end of the film when, um, Tony has, you know, killed Barbara and has been picked up by the police and he says in narration, I have so much in my head which to let it out would surely kill me. Nevertheless, I feel better now. Mm. He doesn't say it in that sort of Hannibal yeah. Lecter way, but it, is, it does send a shiver down his spine. So those are all the things that are interesting about the film. 
the problems with it sort of come in the way that Tom Callan handles the material. And a lot of his a lot of his creative decisions don't quite work until the end of the film. So it's one of those things where you sort of, oh, I can see why you did that, but I wish the whole film had worked in the same way. So you have the narration, which sort of works at the end because it's narrated by Tony and you can sort of, it's like the thing in The Shining where you know you're in the presence of a killer, but the question is how long has he been going mad? Yes. And yeah. uh, the famous scene in The Shining of no all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, but up until that point, there are little pockets of narration which sort of come up and they sort of iron out a lot of the drama so that you get a very impressive scene but then it's reduced to sort of dull exposition and it sort of spoils it a bit. There are also little plot points that don't quite make sense. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to accept that they may just be stuff that happened which doesn't translate well into yeah. the confines of a drama. But there's the lead up to the murder, there's an argument about this dog collar which had belonged to a dog that Tony had had and then the dog was sort of taken away or killed or something like that and that sort of brought in when he can't find it, that's the thing that sort of sets off his, well, his murder, it's not really a spree, a one-man spree, yeah. but you know, that's the thing that sort of prompts it. And there's, there's visual shortcomings as well, there's a whole section in the film where a young Tony, about 12 years old, talks about, um, Leonardo da Vinci and learning how to write backwards and the way they illustrate that is actually showing him writing but then they reverse the film to make it look like he's writing backwards which is a very sort of lazy device and yeah, it does yeah. make you feel like you're watching the original version of the time machine you know the <laughs> bit when they're when he's sort of sitting outside the fashion shop and the and the clothes on the models keep changing as he yeah, goes further forward yeah. in time so it's a bit like that but not quite as good in summary then it's a film because of its very difficult subject matter and its very glacial tone, it's a film to be admired rather than enjoyed. I mean, certainly it's not escapist viewing that you put on after a long day at the office because you do need to be in the right frame of mind. But beneath this, all the flaws that I've sort of laid out, it's a shocking story that deserved to be told. And I think for all the flaws with Cullen's approach, it's been handled in the most honest way that it could. It's deliberately difficult to watch, for good or bad, and it's a very sort of frightening indictment of the perils of inherited wealth and you know, the resulting moral vacuum that can occur, not always does, but in this case did. I think that Tom Callan has more accessible work in him, but if you are a fan of Julianne Moore, you should definitely check this out because it is one of her finest performances. Right. Well, very few people obviously saw it when it first came out, judging by the, uh, the gross takings. How mm. did you come across it? I came across it because I'm a, a bit of a Julianne Moore obsessive. I'd seen her in um, A Single Man about two years ago, which was the thing which Colin Firth got nominated for the Oscar yeah. first time around before winning King's Speech, although I think Single Man's actually a better film. And she's in that, in a sort of very large supporting performance where she plays his sort of, his, uh, uh, this is uh, George's best friend. And um, I sort of liked her performance a lot, and I sort of went, okay, well, what else has she been in? And I went through the sort of the recommendations generator on, I think it was Flickster or something like that, and Savage Grace sort of came up as you no know, recent stuff that she'd done. And I sort of watched it, and I sort of went in knowing about the bad reputation of it, because it had sort of got very sort of mixed or negative reviews, and I just, it sort of had a weird effect on me. Right. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Well, shall we take a little break? Yeah. The heart of the district. This is Lionheart Radio. And it's Richard Dale and Daniel Mumby with the final hour of The Breakfast Show looking at the movie scene. Shall we move on to the new films this week? Uh, yeah, we should. Can I just say next week's cult film? Indeed, um, yes. I'm going to be in Halifax, but I'll be doing it down the line and we'll do The Boys from Brazil. Oh, that sounds fun. You're not seeing The Boys from Brazil? Hmm? 
You've not seen it? Yeah, I did, yes. 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 Good. I look forward to, yes. uh, to doing that one. Yes, Gregory Peck and Laurence Olivier hamming it for all they're worth. Yes, should be great fun. Mm. Um, right, Marvel Comics time yes. to start with. You want to start with X-Men? Yeah, okay. why not? Um, X-Men First Class, um, which is the big film of the week, actually came out on Wednesday, I think, so there have been a few sort of early reviews. And number five in the series. Um, well, depending on... Depending on which order you've seen them in, it's either number five or number one. Depending on what's, <laughs> it's like, you know, the Star Wars thing, you make the last three and then you go yeah. back to the beginning because George Lucas didn't like beginnings, although yeah. when the money was good, he did. Yeah. So it's the latest attempt to sort of reboot or revamp a franchise. Um, how many of the other X-Men films have you seen? Um, I'm not sure I've actually seen any of them all the way through. I've seen okay. excerpts and clips, but I'm not sure I've actually okay. seen any of them. Well, I'll just sort of canter through the story so far, if you like. The first two X-Men films were directed by um, Brian Singer, who's most famous still for doing The Usual Suspect. Have you seen that? Yes, yeah. What do you think of it? That's a good film. Yeah, I, I have sort of problems with it. I think it's well made, but I'm not sure it's a good story. And the, the thing about Brian Singer as a filmmaker is that he is... He's very uneven because he can't quite decide what sort of film he wants to make, whether he wants to, in the case of something like Superman Returns, whether it's, you know, a throwback to the first two films or something a bit more sort of dark and modern like Batman Begins. So you get the first two films, which, which are uneven in the sense that they're sort of balancing big-budget spectacle and this sort of introspective character drama, but they did have some kind of message about alienation and racism and homophobia because Singer is also very openly gay and is actually a gay activist, I think, aside from his filmmaking job. Then you get the third film um, called X-Men The Last Stand, which sort of Singer was down to direct, but then he dropped out to do Superman Returns and they brought in Brett Ratner to finish it off, and Brett Ratner's this sort of uber hack who sort of, you get, he's the guy whom you get in at the last minute when yeah. your first-choice director leaves, and as a result he made something that was flashy but actually quite shallow then you get the wolverine prequel called x-men's origin wolverine which is sort of boring backstory there was going to be another wolverine film set in japan directed by darren aronofsky who made black swan but that recently fell through so this sort of wipes the slate clean it's taking things right back to before x-men one yeah. the brian singer film looking at the origins of you know, the x-men before wolverine turns up so it's it's about the relationship between the young charles xavier played by james mcavoy and magneto played by uh, michael fassbender we're introduced to a whole bunch of characters who have different mutations and gradually over the course of the film they split into two groups one of which is led by charles xavier later professor x who who want to sort of work with and live alongside humans the other led by magneto who says no we should destroy humans and mutants should inherit the earth and while all this is going on, you have it set against the backdrop of the Cold War in the early 60s and the Cuban Missile Crisis is involved in the big set piece about three quarters of the way in. Ah. Um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a sort of tradition in comic books of sort of, doing, of sort of doing a pop history of stuff. I mean, if you look at something like Watchmen, which tries to restage the Kennedy assassination and Watergate and has an alternative history in which Nixon has managed to be re-elected. So, no, there's a rich, uh, there's a long tradition of comics doing that. Um, there's a number of elements of the film which are a little bit out of sorts. I mean, in the end, it is a prequel, so we are sort of... If you're an X-Men fan, you are sort of filling in the gaps of the story you already know. So it's like, how do we get to the point where Hugh Jackman turns up and starts growing hair? Um, and she got a lot with the Star Wars prequels as well, however much you enjoyed the uh, the glitz of the uh, the filming and some of the clever technology. It was sort of... I don't you think almost knew what was going to have to happen. I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's possible to enjoy the Star Wars prequels, <laughs> to be really honest with you. Don't tell me you like The Phantom Menace. Um, I mean, they weren't as good as the uh, as the original three, but understatement uh, of the century. <laughs> but being being a fan of that type of film, and yeah, I can't not enjoy it. What but, two uh, and a half hours of blatant racism and CGI? <laughs> <laughs> it is. I'm sorry, but that's another story. So, 
in the end, it is a prequel, although I dare say that a lot of people going to see this, this will be their first X-Men film, because it's a 12 certificate, and I suppose it's the ideal place to start, in yeah. that sense. You also have bits of the backstory are misplaced. Um, did you ever see Shutter Island? Martin Scorsese film. No, I didn't. Because, um, no, that was a sort of pulpy thriller about, you no know, a guy who goes to a, an island to solve a mystery, or maybe he's been there before. And one of the things that was a bit out of place in that was they had a central sequence which was set in a concentration camp in which it was implied that the detective had sort of been there and it had yeah. a sort of impact on him. And it was sort of, yeah, Martin, we get the message, but you don't need yeah. to go that way. And there's a similar bit at the start of this which sort of over-eggs the pudding where you see... I think it's Michael Fassbender's character in a concentration camp at the start, and it's very much like, I mean, Singer is involved at a production level, and he did sort of explore Nazism in a film of his called Apt Pupil, which is a Stephen yeah. King adaptation in which, you know, Ian McKellen plays a Nazi war criminal who's hiding out in America, and a young kid becomes fascinated with him. Interesting idea, but quite misjudged by Singer, I think. And you also have the standard problem of X-Men, which is that there's so many characters that you kind of don't know which one to pick, and it's the duplicity in comic books of the men get to walk around in sort of full latex jumpsuits while the women have to sort of walk around in their underwear and and again it's you know yeah you can understand the thinking behind it because a lot of comics are let's face it written by men and yep. quite young men but it's just not it's written not, by not boys for boys yeah yes. it's not yeah no there's a whole argument about sort of cinema being for teenage boys but no it's yes. it's it's not going to bring in a young young uh, girl audience, is all I'm going to say. On the plus side, however, it's directed by Matthew Vaughan, who is going from sort of strength to strength as a director, because he started out as pretty much as low as you can get, producing Guy Ritchie's early films. Then he made sort of Layer Cake, which is a sort of flashy gangster film with not much going on. And then Stardust, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago, yeah, which is a great yeah. children's film. Most recently he made Kick-Ass, which is sort of independently... Uh, spirited comic book film which then got a mainstream release and has become it's got a protean cult status so you might end up talking about that in a few weeks but so this is the sort of the this is a, in the end a mainstream vehicle that he's sort of been brought into to bring a bit of that independent spirit to it and i think that he does handle the material quite well it isn't perfect or seamless but it is uh, it's certainly a lot better than X-Men 3 because it's more intelligent and it could be quite be good fun. So I was just looking at the, uh, the wiki uh, write-up on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing how quickly it gets these get written up on wiki, but uh, <laughs> uh, a long section on uh, discontinuities between the prequel and the sequels. I dare say they've been written by the, you know, fan movie and racks are having a field day, I take it. Yeah, I mean, if you go on to stuff like Collider.com, in which every single bit of news about comic books has instant arguments for people saying, no, reboot this, why isn't he bringing this character back, you know, take all that stuff with a pinch of salt, and in the end I don't think it matters, particularly if this is the first X-Men film that you've seen. Right. I should have guessed it from the title, but the next one is a teen film. It's called Prom, yeah. a Walt Disney production. Yeah, sort of latest live-action uh, Disney effort for the teeny bopper crowd, if that's not too archaic a term. Uh, following on from the success of the High School Musical series, and most recently, sort of Hannah Montana and Jonas Brothers to a lesser extent. Um, it's a series of intertwining stories um, directed by Joe Nussbaum about sort of high school kids in America um, all going to the same school, about to graduate and have their sort of high school prom. So you have the story about one guy who can't get a date and he tries various ploys to try to get noticed. There's one bit in the trailer where he leaves um, a message on a girl's locker saying, will you go to the prom with me? But he's accidentally put it in sort of serial killer lettering with <laughs> cutouts of magazines. She gets a bit freaked out. Um, there's another guy who is told by the principal that unless he helps to organise the prom, he won't be allowed to graduate and he's a sort of rebel with slightly longer hair. And no, he, obviously it's a Disney film so they don't show him sort of yeah. smoking on screen. But no, there's a sort of implication that he does. And then there's another girl who's sort of obsessed by the prom and wants to look her best. I mean, we, we, we're talking about Carrie a few weeks ago. Yes. A couple of minutes ago, so, but it's not that. Um, it's not a terrible film. I mean, it's, it'll probably hit its target audience as sort of, well, 
under 12s quite well it's just a bit sort of flat and a bit too shiny for its own good but it's not it's not awful and a lot of people who sort of criticize the high school musical series as being the end of civilization don't know what they're talking about but it's sort of high school musical light and obviously it doesn't have songs in so it's not as good as some lovely american names at the stars amy T amy t garden yes it could only happen in america couldn't it <laughs> you're going to tell me she's japanese or no, something no. now no, I honestly don't know who Amy T. Garden right. is. Our next one, then, is Last Night. Okay, um, new film from uh, Massey uh, Tajuddin, who was the screenwriter for The Jacket, which was this um, thriller starring Adrian Brody from about six years ago, which is actually quite good. Uh, starring uh, Kira Knightley, who's sort of up and down, but has done pretty good work recently, and Sam Worthington, who is not who's always kind of down uh they're a married couple called uh, joanna and michael who are living in new york uh one night they both have romantic encounters which sort of play out side by side another film sort of cutting back and forth between the two and as a result of these encounters they start to question whether their relationship actually works so michael goes on a business trip with uh, laura who's played by the very glamorous eva mendes and joanna runs into her ex-boyfriend alex who's played by french actor uh, guillaume Canet. it's a very sort of brittle insular film which could have been very irritating i mean when we were talking about Savage Grace, I kind of touched on the idea of you know, rich people complaining. Yeah. Um, which I'm not going to repeat because I'll just get tedious. But it's it's an interesting film. It's sort of lifted by the performance of Kira Knightley, who... And it's interesting that it's come out about two weeks after Pirates 4, which she could have been in. She was offered a sort of supporting part, but she said, no, I'm, I, I'm sort of... I'm past that phase. I want to do something more interesting. And I think, you know, for all the stuff that's wrong with last night because it is a bit navel gazing and a bit brittle and it does pull in different directions it's nice to see Kira knightley doing something which is more sort of emotionally earnest and more sort of well, not just intelligent but it's you no know, more sort of welcoming as opposed to a sort of lump and blockbuster so right. it's 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 okay it sort of works you do enjoy the company of the characters uh, flaws and all right very interesting one next a documentary film Senna. Which is the film of the week, I should say. Uh, it's a documentary directed by uh, Asif Kapadia about the life and death of Ed and Senna, who is widely considered to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Formula One driver of all time. It's interesting for a number of reasons. It's constructed entirely from archive material and TV footage. There's no sort of after-the-event interviews like they do in a lot yeah. of modern documentaries. And it's also... And notable for the fact that it had access to the F1 archives, which are sort of personally controlled by Bernie Eccleston. It's the first film made about Formula One that's got access to all the sort of the hidden tape and the black yeah. boxes and so forth, and the stuff that's normally only confined for when they have inquiries. From a filmmaking point of view, it's, it is a big achievement because it manages to take stuff that is televisual in nature, in the sense of, you know, coverage of the races and the interviews yeah. afterwards and make it cinematic so you have all these these different shots of the races including the cameras actually mounted in the f1 cars so you can see it at senna's yeah. eye level but it does feel like it should be on the big screen even though what you're seeing is a tv broadcast at a slightly different frame rate which is quite a technical triumph really. yeah it is because i mean there's there's all sorts of differences between sort of film and television in terms of the shape of the screen and in terms of how fast you play the thing through the to the camera and so forth but i think it is it, there's very few films that actually manage to do it, and it, it's, it is a technical triumph. But even if you don't sort of care about that, or even if you don't care about Formula One, it's really exciting, because you do get the race footage, which is visceral, and you know, there's a yeah. number of crashes, including, obviously, Senna's own, if you don't know about the story of Ayrton Senna. But also, there's sort of excitement in the way that it explores Senna as a whole, because he was a very interesting character, very conflicted, and there was all sorts of stuff about the rivalry with his his teammate, Alan Prost. There was his religious conviction, because he was a very deep, religious Catholic. There was all his stuff about 
um, falling out with the bosses of Formula One with the new rules because he thought yeah. it wasn't proper real racing. And I think it's a very fine piece of work and I shall be going to see this. Well, there's a lot of people who would agree with him on that subject. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can go with a herd on some occasions, yes, can't yes. I, Regent? Yes, <laughs> indeed, yes. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to hear the soundtrack as well because I imagine a film like that's going to be very important to get the soundtrack to glue the bits together for continuity. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that a lot of the soundtrack will just be the engines, but I'll have yeah. to check that out. Presumably this is going to be a time science cinema job. It is, and they're, they're showing it, it's it's being shown quite regularly this weekend so i think there's like four screenings a day so you can right. go along and check it out okay well, the title of the next one worries me a bit screwed um which is a low budget um british prison drama directed by uh, reg travis with two v's two s's as opposed to mick travis from lindsay <laughs> anderson's trilogy we will talk about if in a few weeks time um supporting performance by noel clark who is best known for playing mickey and doctor who the sort of relaunched Doctor Oh, yes, yeah. Um, but he's also in sort of kid-adulthood and adulthood, and most recently in Philip Ridley's Heartless, which is a really great cult horror film. came out uh, last year, and we will talk about that again in a few weeks' time. Um, it's a semi-autobiographical story about um, a soldier who's played by uh, James Darcy, who uh, was most famous for um, Master and Commander. He plays Lieutenant Pullings, whom I think is the one who sort of takes over the ship at the end when they yeah. finally get the Acheron. Master of Command is a great film. Um, so he plays a soldier who's just come back from Iraq. He's sort of in civvies. He gets a job as a prison guard thinking, oh, it's going to be a breeze because, no, I'm used to tough yeah. stuff and fighting for my life. Eventually he discovers that he it's tougher on the inside than he looks and he learns about the dark politics of the prison and Noel Clark plays this sort of, well, it's it's been referred to as the grouty figure because he's the one who's sort of implied to be in control of the prison and it's nice to see him doing a villain role. It's it's sort of an unremarkable nuts and bolts B movie lifted by its performances. It's nice to see Noel Clark, like I say, doing a villain, and he does it quite well. But it will probably have its main life on sort of DVD and television. Right. Okay. We have time for one more. Yeah, um, Mammoth. Yes, or Mammoth, depending on because it's a French film, so I don't know oh, how right. you pronounce it. Um, new film starring uh, Jacob Depardieu. Spoken beautifully. Thank you. Um, he. It's, it's a very odd thing. This. Um, he plays a sixty-year-old biker who is just about to retire from his job at the local slaughterhouse and his wife played by um Yolande Moreau who if you've seen um Amelie is the sort of is the slightly older lady living near um Audrey Tattoo who thinks she's lost her husband in in a crash in the mountains and then at the end of the film um Audrey Tattoo sort of fabricates this letter saying I'm all right and I hope to see you again so it sort of gives her yeah. catharsis um so his wife informs Gérard Depardieu uh, that he is not entitled to certain benefits because because the boss at his last place of work didn't fill out the correct form, so he kind of gets on his old mammoth bike, hence the title, and rides all the way across uh, France to put things right and get the paperwork sorted. Um, watching the trailer, it's actually quite laughable. <laughs> not, oh, not necessarily in the bad way. I mean, he's in an odd point of his career, because, I mean, there was, a, there was a point in Gerard Depardieu's career when he was sort of in the mainstream, because he was in... The Man in the Iron Mask, yes. remember, yeah, do, playing yes. um, Porthos, and there's yes. that great moment in Man in the Iron Mask when he's in the hay barn, and uh, he's, he says, no, I can't, uh, no, I can't uh, give anyone pleasure anymore, I'm going to hang myself, and then the hay comes back and there's three women underneath there, <laughs> and he said, all of them have been, well, satisfied, yes. and then he kind of tries to hang himself and the beam breaks, and I think, okay, we've got to put up with you for the rest of the film, although he is yes. quite good. So, he's, the last thing he did was he was in a film called um, My Afternoons with Marguerite, in which he played a middle-aged man who can't read and hangs around with an old lady who sort of reads him books and it was sort of quite quaint. Uh, and in this, just looking at him in the trailer, you can't help burst out laughing because he's got sort of 
shoulder-length hippie hair <laughs> in a leather jumpsuit, and uh, sort of, and he is. I mean, Gerard Zappos has always been a bit rotund, but in this, he's very plump. Right. Um, so. It's 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 okay. It is it is a sort of sort of quaint, in, independently spirited road movie, notable for the presence of Yolanda Moran, and also there's a supporting performance by Isabella Ajani, who is a very interesting actress to horror fans because she was in a horror film called um, Possession, made by this Polish filmmaker Andrzej Zawowski, which is one of the strangest films of the 1980s, not for the faint-hearted. Uh, so we probably won't discuss it on here. Right. Um, but yeah, so it's it's notable for them. It is a bit. You'll you'll struggle to watch it without sniggering, but it could be good fun. Indeed, and I guess that's another one for the Tyneside. I think that is showing at the Tyneside, but I'm not sure how often it'll be showing. Right, yes. And the ladies, well, they would have enjoyed him when he was a bit less rotund. I think they might enjoy him now in a sort <laughs> yes. of cuddly teddy bear one. <laughs> Thanks very much. So, not a bad crop of films this week, It's then. not bad. I mean, the film of the week is Senna. And yes. And you will get a chance to see that at the Tyneside. X-Men First Class is good, but it's not It's not the masterpiece that a lot of people have been saying it is. You know, people have been saying it's the greatest film of the summer, and you know, you're prematurely judging, because you know, we haven't got to other stuff yet. Out of the others, um, I suppose Screwed is all right, but like I say, it's mainly a, it's a sort of B-movie that belongs on DVD, really. So, if neither X-Men nor Senna is your bag, I think you're better off going back to the top ten and seeing either Attack the Block or Hannah. Great. So, lots of people to go and see, and you'll be with us on the phone next week yes. doing Boys from Brazil. Look yeah. forward to that. And we started with Mary Poppins, so let's end with Mary Poppins and that word you can never pronounce. Cool, blimey. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Lionheart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.